Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy cop podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. The study of the self occupies an interesting place in philosophical thought, because it is the definition of, quote, meta, unquote. It is something which refers to and analyzes itself. There's a saying I'll paraphrase which says that being a bird doesn't make one an ornithologist. Essentially, just because you are something does not mean you understand how you are something. The concept of the self is a deep and convoluted topic, one where philosophers can't even agree if self exists. So the question becomes, can we even study the self? Do we have the tools and abilities needed? Today, Norm and I will endeavor to be the best ornithologists we can and provide you with the basics about what makes up the self, how the self is viewed by different ideologies, how the self progresses over time, and whether the idea of a self can extend beyond, well, the self. All right. So, you know, the, the intro we're talking about, um, the topic of the self, and we brought it up, I think it was in the first podcast about, I mentioned very briefly how it's easier to study things that are more remote to you. If we look at a chair, I don't have a whole lot of emotional um, feelings about a chair. And I can take pieces of wood and I can build a chair from beginning to completion. And there it is. So it's easy to look at this and have a more objective view of what a chair is. Well, that doesn't apply to the self. Self is inherently subjective. I can't, I can't look at the self from the beginning to the end, even though it's always here, you know, and I can't. I have all kinds of emotions tied up with it that even I don't understand or know about. So the whole thing is kind of um, more complicated than people think. This is one of those topics like knowledge or like consciousness where, you know, just on face value, people think they understand it, but you dig into it a little deeper. and It's, it's directly related to knowledge because... Well, and, and you know this, we'll, we'll pull out the Latin phrases because they're fun. So there's uh, a priori knowledge, which is knowledge that you gain by sitting in your chair and thinking. Uh, it's, it's, it's non-experiential. It can all be reasoned, the, the knowledge we gain through our reason. And then there's a posteriori, which is a lovely phrase, and that's experiential knowledge. And you, the metaphor you're using of the chair is really works really well because it's phenomenological. In other words, we have the direct experience, so to speak, of the object, and so we classify it, qualify it, we build it, we say chair. Mm. But that's exterior. That's a posteriori. It's it's available to us beyond ourselves. But we build ourselves, too, in, in the sense, I mean, when you're talking about, uh, well, the, is it right to use the word maneuvers, exercises, when you're out doing your, yeah. your, your work? And, and part of that is, uh, I have to think, after all the things you've said about it, building or rebuilding a set, one self, a kind of self, a, a one of the many selves of Joel. We all do this. 
but it's all within. We 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 perhaps give evidence of who that self is in our uh, moving through the world, but ultimately it's all inside. It's all almost all a priori. Right, and we're gonna we're probably gonna talk a lot about um, stuff that at least at the beginning that isn't necessarily philosophy, but we ha- kind of have to lay the groundwork of um, psychology and, and yeah. some of the other neuro um, psychological stuff, you know, before we get to the edges of what's known and then start, you know, thinking about what's beyond it. But yeah, I mean, that's, um, there was, there's a, uh, I forget what the the name of the the psychological theory is that that it's about it, but essentially the guy says that people are like actors on a stage. So you know you you have different selves from place to place, like you were saying. And well, it's Shakespeare. There's, yeah. there's your Shakespeare. Right. We all every man has seven stages of life, so to so speak. It definitely yeah. is like you know, and I I don't think that it's disingenuous, but it's it's an adaptative um, sort of response. Me in a podcast studio is different from me in the army is different from me in my regular job is different from me hanging out with my wife anywhere as a student, you know, all of those things performing on stage or whatever, all of the, you're, you have a different twist on all of them. And one of the questions we'll talk about later is, is each one of those a different self or is it facets of the same self? And that's, that's probably the biggest question of it, but let's talk about, um, constituents of self and let's really just break it down into two categories let's talk about the body and the mind so we'll start out with the body what does physicality contribute and you know can there be a self um in that way what what have they said about that well we're, we won't be we won't be linear on this let's let's go to something that we all know so well, we think we know so well. Our, our, our culture is, has been bound up in this for some time, which is the self-concept or from the physicality viewpoint, how what we see in the mirror can't, tips, tilts, uh, affects the way we move through the world. Uh, and that's not, that's not a uniform thing. You know? So we're, we're told... You're also, uh, man, you're supposed to look like Jason Momoa. If you don't, you don't. Well, Jason Momoa looks really good. <laughs> I just saw Aquaman, and, and yeah, it's a pitch for it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, he's comfortable in his skin, this, this uh, actor, I think. Um, but we all, women, girls, are constantly uh, the cosmopolitan image still in the 21st century. We should be past this, but we so much aren't. And, and so the physicality that one level is what we see in the mirror. The next level is of course, the, the constructs that we assume. So sex and gender are not the same thing. And, and we know this linguistically. We also know this psychologically. Uh, some folks in the culture have a hard time wrapping their heads around this still. But that is a physicality issue too. What what defines you physically for yourself, and what identifies you physically according to cultural norms or values? So th- th- that's a really complicated one, and we're we're stepping all through it right now. Yeah, yeah, and I think without getting 
into the weeds too much because if we get in too far, we're not going to be able to get back out. <laughs> yeah, but but you, you're hitting on a really important part of understanding the topic of self, which is that there's a duality that people don't realize. And so the duality of it is, is like I referred to in the intro, you already have two selves. You have the I and the me. You have the one who is doing the reflecting and the one that is being reflected upon. And those two things right there automatically kind of validate the gender versus sex argument because you can be, you can physically be something, but what you're reflecting on is, is different from what is being reflected. Yes. And that's a complex concept and, and, and an important one. And this is, I, I think the whole discussion of self right now at this time and we won't go into the weeds but it is to say we if we just can recognize how much more complicated human beings are how much of a wondrous wonderful variety of people there are that aren't limited to two categories or four categories which we this goes past categorization we so desperately always want to categorize and we've talked about that in a past mm, yeah. podcast too Self defies categorizations. Yeah. And it even gets kind of weird. And this is something I've experienced myself. We'll go into it a little bit. I think it's less controversial, but equally as important. Um, right now we're in the midst of football playoffs. And it's, it's a huge thing around here. Everybody loves watching football, loves the playoffs. But a big thing in recent times has been um, concussions, traumatic brain injuries, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that that's one of those things. I know certainly for me when I was younger, I always thought, oh, what's the big deal? Guy bumps his head a week or two later, you know, or even when I was a kid, you know, he'd just get thrown right back into the game. Not a big deal or whatever. And, um, you know, I think that everybody takes some bumps on the heads. And probably, I would say that most people have a concussion at some point or another, but very minor. Um, but if, a couple of years ago, it was about this time of year, I... I I had a bunch of snow on the roof, so I went up to shovel the roof. And I just have a one-story place. Um, but I was up shoveling the roof, and uh, I didn't have a ladder. So I had, I had climbed up on my deck rail, climbed up on my roof, shoveled off the roof. And then when I went to get down, I slipped on the icy roof, and I fell face first and broke my deck rail with my jaw. Yeah, and... There was no broken bones. There was, you know, little scratches or whatnot, but I stood up and didn't know where I was, didn't know anything like that. And long story short, it took me about six months to fully recover from that. And during that time, I had very peculiar um, things that happened with the self where there's visual things where everything became kind of two-dimensional and very colorful. Um, then there was some, what I found out later was depersonalization where I'd look in the mirror and I wouldn't recognize myself. And that sounds kind of crazy. It sounds really crazy, but this is a, that's a kind of a regular symptom of having a, a concussion. If you have a serious enough concussion, that's something that can happen. You can look in the mirror and not know who you are, or even just sitting where you are, not understand that you are you. So, extend that just a moment. You extend, and, and 
it's not the same thing exactly, but you you got a taste of it. This is what some folks unfortunately experience in dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a separation, a dissociation. Yeah, and that's that's a big thing that they're struggling with studying it is because what the problem is is there's there's a lack of ability to it's that lack of me it's not a lack of i though and that's where they're trying to understand is because the i is still there there's so still a cohesive they understand that they're a person but what they're reflecting on they don't understand and so it's like you were saying it doesn't matter what category you're looking at understanding self whether you're looking at the one you're reflecting on or the one doing the reflecting is extremely complex and it all starts with the physicality the brain the physical brain you know yes so that kind of talks about you know physicality the brain um the body a little bit how the systems interact um let's talk about the mind um psychological developments consciousness um how the self works in relationships with others outside what's been the philosophical um sort of history of that well okay so we've 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 recognized descartes in it i think therefore i am i exist because i can be sure that i'm experiencing things no matter what else i can't be sure of in the world um so we start with that but the dualism moves all the way through the centuries so that Flash forward now, well, now, the late 20th century, and now Daniel Dennett and many others uh, talking about the ghost in the machine, that we have brain and we have mind, Mm -hmm. and that the mind, it's postulated now by uh, neurophilosophers, that the brain creates the mind, creates the I as an illusion to hold us together moving through the world. That is actually uh, an algorithmic <laughs> subroutine, perhaps is the best me- mechanistic term, uh, that holds the whole system together. That really there isn't <laughs> an I. We just like, the, but, the, but the value of the illusory I of uh, helps us move through the world i don't you know and whenever i talk about these things it's not that i'm endorsing any any one of these things i I think they're all fascinating and that's why one teaches these these things and what and thinks about it all the time but i can see arguments i can understand the argument for this and yeah that's that's something whenever i am looking at history my favorite things to look at are the the beginning of something like when something first hits on the scene because it's sort of like um there's this giant out you know outgrowth of ideas in every single direction and then it generally gets pruned back into the two or three ones that are good you know if you looked at uh, like the history of airplanes you look at airplanes and you see you watch the videos of these things with like 10 stacks of wings and and all this other stuff or you know the the beginning of cell phones you see these tiny things that flip open sideways or you know have keyboards on the front or cars you know you have the you know three wheels or all this different stuff it you know and that's that's kind of the the neat idea is things spread out all over and then it generally gets um whittled down a little bit 
And, and so what we're down to is we're paired down to really we're back to uh, we dualism or uh, um, a monism, uh, a, a oneness of being. And we seem to tip toward the dualistic nature because we still, uh, the, the arguments, even the arguments to say the, the holy uh, neurological arguments to say we are nothing but meat machines. Mm. That it's all organic and chemicals and electrostatic charges and so on. And that the purpose of that is to just keep us motive through the world so that we can replicate and continue. And one can understand that explanation. Uh, but yet, it doesn't, to me, uh, as, as a, I'm not a, the deepest thinker in the world, but it doesn't, to me, make complete sense because there is these, this extra. If the ghost in the machine is an illusion, it's there to convince us that there's something better than what there is. And just to keep us distracted from mm -hmm. the fact that we're walking through the world and replicating, that's just a fascinatingly counterintuitive yeah. thing. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, you have that one train of thought, the people who, you know, are very evolutionary, very kind of think of people as animals. And so what happened is, you know, we, we developed and these pattern identifying processes just got so, you know, so advanced over time that now we're essentially human consciousness is sort of a mistake of evolution. We've just evolved so far that now it's not serving a, a, the purpose that it was meant to or whatever. And on the other hand, you have, you know, people who, um, you know, would kind of, like you were saying, would kind of combine a lot of these things, even not even just mind and brain, but even soul or, some of these other things, you know, looking at all of these different things and how it, how it causes you to not just view yourself, but also the rest of the world or, um, you know, animals or that sort of thing. That's kind of a fascinating thing. And, you know, you touched on it even with, with gender, that sort of thing, you know, how your views on, you know, how the self is contained whether you're just a meat machine or whether you have a soul and a mind and a brain and all of these other things in has it influences a big part of how you interact with the world. It does. And we associate the self with, with the mind so much and what you were just talking about with your fall. Mm. Essentially you were saying for six months, I wasn't exactly myself like you'd been knocked out of yourself you see the pronouns our language is not equal to this yet and it's yeah. so, so it's, it's it's like having it's like having trying to develop the tools to build something that we know we can build that we know we want to build you're talking about cars or airplanes or whatever but we don't have the tools yet yeah but we're working on those tools and 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 our language always is our first tool for this kind of thing um you were talking that whatever what you said just a moment ago there's a, a philosopher named alvin uh, plantinga uh he says we may have evolved to have many false beliefs allowing us to survive and reproduce and that's what i was talking about a moment ago so that it's not the idea that well evolution is not straight line anyway and evolution as they say is blind um 
And so we evolve things. If religion itself may be an evolved thing that helps us survive because it gives a self, a set of selves, a collective purpose or focus. Uh, but you were knocked out of yourself. Most of us are by, well, tragedies, sadness, great loss, great change in life. Suddenly we're reconceiving who we are. Uh, a child comes into a family. Ah, I have another role now. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's something that happens without a lot of reflection on the part of individuals. But people, I think anybody looks back, I think a, a pretty common one is, let's say you date somebody and then you break up. And then you're looking back and you're trying to think, well, what did I do wrong? And then, like, whether somebody tells you or whether you reflect on your own, you all of a sudden you, you start to think of things and you think, what was I doing? Like, <laughs> you know, like, what? that was crazy. Like, why would I do that, you know? And then that changes who, how you act in the future or how you think about things in the future. And what's doing the reflecting? So let, let's right. say on it. Is it is it the self of that moment... No, that's in the past. Well, we talked about time before these podcasts, too, so everything is in the now. That experience, as well as thinking about that experience. But the person you are now, thinking about that that uh, breakup, uh, as an example, is, you're already saying, not that person, but I'm reflecting on, well, what's doing the reflecting? Well, my mind and my memory are doing the reflecting, but my mind and my memory are extraordinarily flawed so the memories that i have constructed about what happened in that relationship uh, as you know an x example uh may not be entirely accurate either right which is exactly <laughs> that's exactly the alzheimer's problem i was i was talking about earlier is that they're finding that these people have a sense of self but there's no memory trail to reflect on and so they're they're and even scientists don't understand that how do they have a cohesive sense of self but not without being able to reflect on the past you know it's it it's a problem it's a, it's it a problem. is and there is there is a there's a linearity that preserves self or not preserves that's not the right word that that's a breadcrumb for elements of the self i was talking uh this past week in a, a nursing uh, facility with a person who goes in and plays music um and and she was constantly um, surprised. My son has talked to me about this sometimes uh, as a musician, that no matter how cloudy, foggy, or lost uh, someone in dementia or um, many people with Alzheimer's, which aren't the same things, but they're, you know, varieties of this, uh, how they will not know where they are, perhaps not even be able to say their name. Some, some can, of course, it's across the spectrum. But yet, when they hear a tune, the lyrics are there. Mm -hmm. They're singing the tune. Maybe they begin to, they haven't moved their bodies all day, and suddenly they're moving their arms as if they're dancing with someone. Yeah. Uh, the facial reaction, the whole affect of the, cap, you know, A, A-F-F-E-C-T, the affect of the person alters because of the breadcrumb, that music, perhaps providing them some kind of stepping stone to where they are this is going to be a goofy reference but it, you know i'm marvel comics so what can i tell you everybody knows this so i about me who knows me so in the first x-men movie magneto the villain can manipulates you know, magnetism it's 
going over to a, 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 a dungeon that he's got somebody held in, and it's across a chasm. And so he's just moving his hand and drawing up pieces of metal to walk across as a steps. But nobody else can do it because he's self-generating that, because that's his superpower. But I think that listening to music, uh, a self that is lost or fragmented in dementia, uh, it's one of those, it's a magneto kind of stepping stone leading back to or toward what one thinks one was. Right. And I think that human memory operates that way in a lot of different ways. Um, I think the music is definitely one of the stronger ones, but, um, you know, PTSD is, operates on the same sort of principle. You have um, physical stimuli that trigger a memory of a past event and then it kind of transports you to the self that participated in that event it puts you in that time frame or you know like we were talking about at the beginning that that actors on a stage sort of mentality certain stimuli um cause a change in self for lack of a better word and again this is a topic we'll get into at towards the end is it a change in self or is it a different part of the self yeah but, yeah Let's so let's dive in a little bit um, into um, some worldviews of self. Let's start with like individualistic, so the essence of self or the floating man. Um, some Western thought on on how that is. Okay, so uh, the idea of the floating man goes back to actually uh, the medieval model. Uh, and was talked about not by Augustine, actually Boethius, I think, um, but but picked up and developed all the way up till Daniel Dennett's uh, Man in a Floating Chamber. If you take the, uh, the brain out of a man's body or a woman's body, you have the brain in a vat, it's called. But the original floating man was, uh, started that, which is to say if I don't have any, uh, if I'm removed from any, sensory stimulation on one end of the spectrum or all i have is sensory uh, stimulation but i have no experience of my body where is the self in that and and so it's it's been hundreds of years that this has fascinated people and i don't know that we've gotten all that much further with it, so I'd like to say there's been this this grand progress. I think there's been progress in articulating it in language. I think the science, the neurology, has certainly been able to point to, gee, if I if colors light up on this screen of my brain when I'm thinking certain things, then there is this sensory empirical evidence that something's going on. What's going on? We don't necessarily know. Something's going on. Right. Yeah, it seems the trope of the idea is. Um less the breaking of new ground and more the refining of as you said before the pruning right. right so so the float why does the floating man what about it interests you because you've brought this up before well i think it again comes down to that sort of duality that highlights it gives you the glimpse behind the curtain of how complex the self is because it, it goes to the extreme and you can go to one of the two extremes which is you can you can have the one where it's just like you said, the body without, without the mind, and it's almost sort of mechanistic. Or you can go the other way and have 
the mind without the body and, and how does that work out? And that's kind of fascinating. Um, like if you look at one that I find pretty interesting is like feral children. If you look at, it's obviously completely unethical to, to perform an experiment like this. Oh, let's have a child and completely separate him from people his whole life and see how he goes. But I think the main question is the self. Like we, we think of ourselves as this something on a rock that we have built. But in reality, how much of it is something that belongs to us that's intrinsic to us personally? And how much of it is interacting with other people interacting with the environment. Okay, so Immanuel Kant and John Locke. Mm -hmm. Immanuel Kant says we're born with a stack of <laughs> principles and structures born into us. And that those develop and shape and guide our movement through the world so we can never actually completely know the world as it may be because we are already framed and contextualized by these principles. John Locke says we're the tabula rasa, we're the, we are the, the blank slate. We are born absolutely white piece of paper. And so how do we develop the self? How do we, through knowledge, is, oh, we hear loud sounds, we hear them, we hear and people being able to say music or yelling, or we get words that are applied to those and then we, but then we, at some point, developmentally start thinking and realizing that we're thinking about what those things are. We're putting them into context. Self, in both cases, is contextual. Contextual either with what we're already born with or contextual with what the outside. It's still the in, inner and outer. And, and so it, it is of necessity, I would think, something that is always going to be in flux because those inner structures, if they exist, change for all kinds of reasons, physicality and, but the external stimuli, the sensory experiences so change too because of what happens. What you described is perfect for this. I'm glad you got back to yourself, but uh, you know, you, you didn't necessarily recognize yourself in the mirror. You, the colors were a little bit different. And I think of another topic we've talked about before, which is synesthesia. Mm. To some people, color is sound. Yeah. I, I have two incredible students right now. Uh, one from Japan. It's very articulate. She's a, she's a thinker of the first order. She, and, and, and an artist, a performing artist and a dancer. And, and she so works and, and through English as a second language. And then I asked her to go back to the Japanese and retranslate it to the English to, so that she can talk about this because she's realized her synesthesia most of her life. But to try to articulate why orange hurts, you know, to somebody who would never have thought of orange hurting. Right. Um, does that make her different than everybody else? Well, we are all somewhat different from each other. It's just, it's, she's more, uh, I think anybody who has a condition of any kind that somehow society draws attention to, which, uh, or let's take now the word condition because all the connotative things are so awful sometimes. A state of being which can be authentic enough to say, here is how I'm experiencing the world. Uh, that tells us a whole lot about 
the human condition. And that tells us a whole lot about ourselves because it sort of challenges us to think, well, how honest am I being about how I'm moving through the world? Am I really paying attention? Yeah. And I think that's something that everybody thinks and worries. I mean, I, I did it before. I really debated before, before you showed up today about telling the story about falling off the roof, because that's something where somebody can hear that. Oh, this guy looked in the mirror and didn't recognize himself. He might be crazy, you know, but I think that that that's what you're saying is that, you know, we, we have the need to categorize, you know, and we have the, um, sort of want to be on the bell curve somewhere, but, Everything is subjective and contextual. And we also have the need, and I think this is what balances us out, what you just described again. It takes courage to tell a story about yourself if it's a real story. I know the word real is all debatable. We've been there, but because it makes one vulnerable. Stories are stories define us, not entirely, but piece by piece, the, the, the facet. Our stories express what we are concerned with. Our stories express what is curious to us. The stories we make up and then the stories of ourselves, which are also constructed through remembering events and remembering what other people told us about those events. So yeah, if we say somehow we've had this experience that other people might not have, the first thing we can expect is somebody might say, oh, well, he's trouble or She's got a problem, or because if that that belies the the fear that if we just don't walk this little line, this very slender line, oh, I'm going to be one of those people that fell off. Oh dear, that's not good because now everybody's looking at me because you know we do this so much to people. When in fact, if we would more often embrace those stories, as as you're doing, say, what can we learn from this? Mm. That, that that's courageous it's also intellectually necessary yeah and i think that when you do look at especially music look at some of people's musical idols and think about these people doing like their first show like especially um kiss or if you're if you're a younger group like slipknot or somebody these people that dress up in costumes or have these really outrageous looks you know you, you think of that as either cool or uh, it's just the way they are now but imagine those people playing at a bowling alley in your town. You'd think these guys are crazy. Like, look at these weirdos all dressed up and kind of, but, and yet these people have now garnered um, societal fame and respect and admiration for what they've done. And the look is completely overshadowed by um, the artistic endeavors. So, these people are, are essentially saying this is how I identify this sort of thing as, as part of myself or part of, um, you know, how I express myself. And at some point people decided to accept it as, yeah, Hey, all right, this is, this is how they are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I think that that gets lost when they're famous for so long. But that's sort of the, the, the experiment is imagine them playing at your local bowling alley. And what would you think about them then? You'd think, you know, it's. Well, what does physicality have to do? See, you're back to physicality in the sense of how we drape our physical selves, how we costume our physical selves. The military doesn't want you draping yourself differently than anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. right. Well, except that 
somebody has more pips or somebody has more stripes or, or so it's slightly different. Am I accurate? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the workplace, where I work, there's seemingly not a, a completely now a double standard, but still, I think I think the people who identify as male often get to have a wider range of everything from formal to informal than people who identify as female. Uh, what's professional? When somebody can tell you, this is the professional look, well, who says? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I don't look professional, have I then, I've lost points somehow, and therefore I'm losing authority. Myself, who might have the same thoughts about things. Mm-hmm. I wear my Marvel t-shirt into my philosophy class with my jacket and my matching colored or complimentary colored sneakers, which I like to do. Sometimes that gets attention. It gets people to laugh. Sometimes it gets people to think, what? This guy does not a three-piece suit. So I like wearing three pieces sometimes when I like to wear them, <laughs> you know, but, but you have to have a comfort with your self and, and, a, and, a, uh, and a also acknowledgement of when it, when society says it is required or appropriate to do this, or you can't be in this space, you know, self is contextualized by clothing. Self is contextualized by the requirements of a certain space at a certain time. But it doesn't necessarily change. See, I, I think we're back to the facets. Yeah. To me, uh, to me, it's all it, it is facets. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's interesting. You know, that's another thing. People don't think of clothing as being a huge um, representation of self, or maybe they do if they think about it, but they don't think about it much. But in the military, that happens. We have a family day once a year, and when you go in, everybody gets to dress in regular clothes, and all of a sudden. You, what you find out is you have an easier time picking out these people when they're dressed in military uniforms all the same than you do when they're wearing different clothes. All of a sudden, you know, this guy that you thought was just, you know, a normal dude, he's, he's dressed all, all crazy. You barely recognize him, you know? And uh, Is that because you concentrate on the face more when the uniform is the same? And even more than the face, you start identifying people by the back of their head and their ears and all, all different things, their, you know, their height and... You just have to draw on much different things. And the way you interact with people is different too. Cause I think that I know I, at least for me, I see people in certain clothes and I don't think that I would interact with them the same way if, if I had met them that way. And I don't think of myself as having those kinds of biases, but all of a sudden you realize that you do. And and then you get over them through that, you know, all of a sudden you realize, okay, well, somebody that dresses like this doesn't mean that they have these personality attributes. That's just their, what they choose to wear. And now you've hit on why even schools, certain uh, private schools, whether Catholic or Christian or, or, or secular, uh, some private schools require uniforms. And people, you know, the kids, of course, want to push against that. Although I think kids become at some point uh, comfortable with that for the very reason that you're not in competition for everyone else about who can be on the outside, who can, let's all be individual together and wear the same thing. You know? um, but it is fascinating because it does help define or re reify, um, clarify what you just described as a clarification of who this person is yeah you're really drawing on um things outside of visual cues to determine 
your opinions on somebody, which honestly is kind of a more a positive than a negative, I would say, in my the experience that I've had, you know. So, yeah, let's talk about so we've talked about the the individualistic part of the self um some let's talk about if there is no self imaginary um the self as a narrative center of gravity or um buddhist thought a lot of people think buddhism is a religion it's it's really a philosophy and it sort of operates on this self as an imaginary kind of thing so can you elaborate on that a little bit so and part of this comes from being brought back to um, that kind of philosophical approach uh, through yoga. Uh, I have a remarkable yoga teacher who used to be one of my students, and now I'm one of hers. And and uh, learning learning so much, and having minored in religions uh, in college, uh, it brought me back to some things that I wasn't ready necessarily to perceive at that particular point. But it's the idea is not necessarily that there is no self. Uh, it's that when the self becomes the first principle of all things, and this is where it connects with other ethical philosophies, uh, not just Buddhism, that that intrudes upon what one can do in this world that to be so caught up in one's own pain or so caught up in one's own whatever emotions that they are to the exclusion of what's around oneself then you are removing yourself there's that word again from social responsibility mm. or from from helping people to live as uh, might be better for them de-emphasizing the thing we always want to talk about which is us <laughs> and i'm by no means an expert so you can correct me if i'm wrong here but i think that it's almost it's almost kind of like reverse pantheism like it you are part of rather than god being part of everything it's almost like you are part of everything it's you're it's less so you are you right yourself isn't the center of it you're you're part of everything else that's around and when you think so much of self, then you're separating you're, you're right. separating from that larger wholeness, mm -hmm. and that's looked at as a, a a bad thing, a negative thing. So that's that's sort of um, a philosophical quote, religious sort of aspect. But let's let's look at it from a, a philosophical point too. As the self is an an imaginary center of gravity, what? Whether it's philosophy or, or psychology, neuroscience, what what are the, what's the um, what's kind of the the evidence or the argument for that as opposed to the self being a, an actual thing? You were, you talked about it at the beginning, you know, that they've talked they've looked at it and said, well, the eye might not really be real; it might just be there to help us operate. So, what is what's some of the background of that? Well, some of the background of that would, would be with our technological prowess. Uh, our our developing machinery uh, to be able to measure uh, to be empirical uh, about the processes that we find within the brain and 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 looking for any evidence that something else exists. Well, it's really hard to provide evidence. <laughs> 
Now we're back to the evidentiary stuff. How do you provide evidence that you have a self? What evidence would there be that you have a self? And this is what this is what the 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 uh, hardline mechanists uh, or organo mechanists, I think, are are saying. Look, we can look at the screen. We can see this. Maybe it's not this you know clear, but let's say this response causes this feeling you say you're experiencing, which translates to this part of the brain activity going on in it. So you say you're experiencing this. I, I, I don't deny that something is going on there, but it's all able to be rendered in uh, code, formula, electrical signals. So, so why do I need to clutter it up with these other... <laughs> I mean, I'm oversimplifying, and I'm not, and I'm not deriding this. I think I understand uh, something of the argument here. Right? Yeah. I mean, it make it makes sense if we if we have an explanation for all of the behaviors. It's behaviorism, essentially. If we have an explanation for all the behaviors. Why do we need to invent something outside of that? Because it still doesn't let us off the hook ethically. We 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 I hesitate to say, but we know so that we think about ethics and behavior mm. well the machine the technology doesn't erase that right. it just says that it's all part of the package yeah here's where it's coming so the real question i think is why do we get so hung up in this and i do as much as the rest of us why do we want to think that we are more than this organic being and there's a lot packed into that but why, yeah. why do we why do we insist that, that there is a self that really, that the word really exists as opposed to imaginarily exists. Well, if we create a dragon in our head, I can sit here and say to you, and I do this to my students sometimes, you, I think I did it to you once upon a time, so you will now, sitting here, not think about a large pink dragon with two heads. You will not think about all the spikes on the end of that dragon. Do not think about that pink dragon walking toward a giant purple building and there it is yeah. and there it is so does that exist as an imaginary construct yes but it, it, it phenomenologically as an actual construct in the world that i can touch no but does it exist yeah. <laughs> okay and that's just one little you know so neurologically i've just done this somehow cogitatively and engaged in the, the the word magic back and forth and created an image. Does it matter that I did that because I have a self that's eternal or that I have an imaginary self that created this imaginary scenario? Right. Yeah. And I, that's, I really like this because it reminds me of like the determinism versus indeterminism argument on just on the fact that when you first broach it, it just sounds ridiculous. You know, like, I think everybody likes to think of themselves as indeterminists. They like to think that they have an action. Yes, they have and autonomy, so, agency. And, and so, yeah, <laughs> so when you say that you have no free will, from the beginning, people are like, no, that's ridiculous. And I feel like it's the same thing with the self-argument. It's like, so how do you show you have a sense of self? Well, I'm here. I'm experiencing this. I have a body, so I have a self. You know, and so on face value, that argument sounds just ridiculous. Like, well, obviously you have a self. But when you start digging into it, all of a sudden, that's where that's where the the actual philosophy starts happening. You have to start. It's not enough to just have a body and no. have experience. You have to have more than that to have what 
we've defined as and why do we want to have more than that if we need to have more than that if we're not just a body sitting here in a, a self what's important about this to us and this is where all those other questions go it's important how i walk through the world why because of who i could affect what if i'm a person who doesn't care about who i affect well then you're not a moral person ah because you've said that the morality means caring about other people and so on and so on it all cascades from what we insist that exists which is the self illusory or actually it's still there yeah and i think it's it's almost a metaphorical uh, reflection on the brain itself you know like that's that's the way people learn is there's no direct line from one thing to another you know everybody learns how two plus two goes a different way and all of those neurons connect to all these different things so as a result like you were saying somebody who has a, a severe neurodegenerative disease can still remember music and the reason for that is probably because that music is connected to so many other things it's not just you know their ear to their brain it also has to do with there's visual stimuli i you know i think about it certain years of my life i have a soundtrack to them i can think of things that i only listen you know i listen to this music during this time and all these things and as soon as i hear that song i feel like i did when i was that age you know so it goes the music is connected in to many different parts of the brain and philosophy is the same way just because you ethics is not a subject all its own Although that sounds ridiculous because it is. It has its own category. And yet it but, falls within the larger. Yes, it affects every single part and every single thing. So it's all, it's all very connected and, and that's just part of being human. Here's a quick thought. So I've, I've, I've often said this. It's not original, I'm sure. It comes from somewhere. But wouldn't it be cool if we all, when we walked into a room, a meeting, whatever, our soundtrack was playing at that moment? indicative of where our, our mood is of, of what we are so i might be walking into the room listening to the, the theme for gandalf from lord of the rings and somebody else might be walking in listening to this remarkably uh, powerful political rap song and someone else is listening to i don't know tony bennett and and and, and kiss and, and and you walk in if we did this if it was external if we weren't just looking for cues on people's faces about how are you feeling how are you feeling why do we always ask this of people how are you well partly we're being polite but partly it's this is the f this is the framework that i'm bringing into this now uh it's like pig pen in in in, <laughs> in the peanuts he's always got this cloud of dust around him which he accepts about himself but what all of our emotions are kind of like those clouds of dust we walked into a room and they were all evident would we be more honest with each other would we would we be more attentive to the dynamics that but it's still our self is generating that right here's the mood i'm in <laughs> yeah okay so let's let's get to the real crux of the self issue the one that that is the big question which is static versus changing are we one growing self or are we multiple new Selves. So we have the philosophy question of the ship. I can't remember the name. The of ship it. of Theseus. Ship of Theseus. So you have this ship. You have it for a long time. It boards get worn out. They replace boards. Time goes on. Eventually, every single board on the ship is replaced. There's no original parts. Is that the same ship or is it a new ship? And the same thing goes with people. We have all these experiences, and so as re experiences go on, 
pieces of my self-identity get damaged. You know, I look at a breakup, I say, why did I do that? I decide not to do that anymore and I replace it with a new behavior. Mm-hmm. Time goes on. 20 years from now, I'm not at all reflective of who I was 20 years before. Am I a different person or am I the same person who has adapted? You know? You've articulated that very well. Which, which are you drawn to, Joel? Which, which part of the ship of Theseus? I think, I think that just like being an indeterminist, um, I think that I think that most people are intuitively drawn to wanting to say, I am one person. I think there's something psychologically uncomfortable about saying, I'm a new person now. Because, you know, I think that that, that thought, there's something unsettling about it. There, there is. Now, and, and I'm not going to take us into the weeds again with this, but, but think just for a moment as we, the idea of being born again in a in a, a, a christian sense or or any spiritual discipline or you know the, the phraseology is not the same but really there's a sense of oh i'm starting over mm. well i am still i i can't just suddenly be a blank slate I've, i'm recalibrating perhaps to use a mechanistic i'm refocusing to use a mechanistic yeah we just had the new year and everybody makes new year's resolutions new year new me well, <laughs> what's different than the, you flip the page on the calendar? You know? And if you don't achieve those things, then do you start feeling bad about yourself? I so wanted to do this, but I didn't. Oh, why? Okay, so I'm going to – can we play a game for a second? Yeah. All right, so I think we may have done this before, but I, let's go back to it. So it's the game of how many pieces of you would need to be replaced before you're no longer human. So this is going to sound grim, but in grotesque, but it's not meant to be. But let's say you lose an arm, you get a prosthetic arm. Are you still you? Yeah. Okay. You lose an, lose an eye. You get, let's say, a, a bionic. We're developing these now. Eye. Are you still you? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Credit card. You don't know. We've got the technology people are working on it right now and experimenting on people with it. It's happening. So you can have the chip put in your wrist or your palm. So you don't have to whip out a card anymore. You can just put it over. Are you still you? I feel like that's almost an extension of you. Now you now there's information that at one point wasn't part of you and now it is part of you. So at what point so you have a, you you you're starting to lose your hearing. You have an, an artificial implant put in the ear that doesn't show, but it it's here. Are you still you? And and we keep going through this until you get to the, I love doing this with my students because sometimes you get to a point and say, "No, no, I am not a person anymore." People have different lines. But where's the line? Right. Because this is your floating man done through all the technology now. Do I have to have my own brain, even if the rest of my body was metal? Right. Would I still be? And we talked about it with knowledge some, you know. What, what, how do we think about it with animals or with artificial intelligence? You know, at what point do we say, this is not a a person this is not uh a self right it's not a self so that those lines are very fluid much more fluid than people think when you start talking about the self i think these and and, and it's not just us sitting here in chairs you know knocking this back and forth i think this becomes very important for not just people in the military although i've had s- students who um are and have been who've been physically damaged uh and i've listened you know, you you get to hear people's stories and you listen. Yeah. 
and and you come to be aware of why is it it is a very big deal the kind of prosthetic first do you have the the right the, can the va provide this do you have private medical that can provide this do people have different kinds of arms that they can get but it's not just this, oh let's just slap an arm on somebody like like a comic book thing it's it's some it's very very hard for people yeah it was like you were saying you know i think it's easy i think that most people probably 99% of people would say if you have an arm replaced you're still you yeah. but the person who doesn't have the arm they still have a phantom limb syndrome they still think of that arm as yes. part of them when it's not there so that's almost the mind telling you that without that arm, you're not the same because the mind wants to believe it's there. Or there's a simple psychological experiment you can conduct with people where, I forget exactly how it goes, but you have the wall over here hiding their arm, then you have a fake arm, and then you have somebody petting the fake arm, and your arm will feel it. Well, that is your mind incorporating something that is not part of you as part of yourself. That's the ghost again. Yeah, you know, the the ghost is extending beyond your body, and that's, that's a big part of you know amputation stuff or depersonalization stuff or all of these things and that's part of the context of how people look at us again too so people look at someone without a limb and they will feel all kinds of things some of them perhaps tipped uh, stereotypically some of them perhaps uh, condescendingly some of them perhaps out of out of empathy and not knowing what to do and what to say mm. as if there's something one should say right we feel somehow the need to comment Someone has a prosthetic, and it's it's and it's a, a tangible prosthetic. But there's a different but parallel kinds of set of things. We always somehow feel the need to comment, right? Rather than talking to the self, it's like they're just a that. Why do we? So there's that physicality that we started with. We we need to keep asking why we do this, so that perhaps we stop doing this when it becomes. Because when we force people to define themselves against their own will by their physical being i mean look at how people that stephen hawking was always talking about uh, how he felt that people were seeing him in his chair and, and so on but but he got past that to enough at least from his own he could go on with his work much longer than anybody thought he could go on with his work somebody wheels in with their head tipped to the side and has a voice uh, uh, accentuator, you don't necessarily think, oh, well, here's a fully functioning human being who has unequal status with me. And you should. Right. We each should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a great segue into the last part that we were talking about, which is how does relating to other people change our, our sense of self? So, and I think that what we've covered so far is how relating to others we um infer things about their sense of self but those things also change our sense of self you know and again you know it's one of those things like i was talking about if seeing people in their regular clothes makes me realize that i treat i treated people different then you know for sure that if somebody has an arm or a leg or not does the color of somebody's skin does and these are all things that you i think a lot of people can go through their lives and not know this about themselves i've been lucky enough to have um experiences and encounters with enough different kinds of people that i do recognize it and i'm not at all saying that i'm there i definitely still have implicit biases i definitely still 
treat people different, but I don't do it on purpose. Right. And we're trying to get past that. Right. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, wanting to blame people or wanting to say things about people. But I think that, you know, it, what we're highlighting is that interacting with people, every person, there's things going on. You're making judgments about them. And then you are shaping your own behaviors about what you think about the category of person that they fall into. And that's shaping who you are as a person, you know? And so the experiences that somebody's had in a past that have caused them to become a neo-Nazi or caused them to become a philosopher or whatever the case may be, your sense of self is determined, um, I think to a great extent by how you interact with other people. All right, let's let's head into the topic, which um, is uh, do institutions have a sense of self? And I don't know where I I don't know where I came up with this one, but I thought it was kind of interesting. And so the things that I I kind of came up with there, it seems to me like like-minded leaders can use metacognitive processes to establish a definition of what a group believes. So you can have, whether you have one charismatic person leading a company, a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk or somebody, or whether you have a board of directors that, you know, very boringly crafts a vision statement, institutes rules, does these things. It sure seems like you can look at different companies and draw about personality characteristics or what their self-identity is you know yes that's that's very much the language i find it troubling sometimes that's my own implicit stuff my own experiences coloring that um you know uh, uh, not so long ago the the supreme court uh essentially designated companies as people. Hmm. Now, a lot of people didn't pay much attention to that. Quite a few people did, but didn't know what to do. But the implications of that, meta, meta, you're Hmm. talking about meta. So, and what you just described as a dynamically, dynamically led company or a company with a dull board. Well, all right. So if a company is a person, can a person be corporate? And and so if and that's the case, if Freud, Jung, and so on said, well, we've got at least three board of trustees members in there. We've got the id, the ego, and the superego, or, or various you know iterations after that. So if we got a lot of dull individuals just guiding us, stay according to the rules, keep dressing the same way, eat your cornflakes, and and all. All right, in our brains. And we can recognize elements of different people within ourselves, but under governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and under uh, enough, in, uh, the structural integrity is essentially one. We can we can use that, turn that very thing around, and realize the corporate nature of the meta corporate nature for ourselves. Not that we're businesses, because I will not. My students are not. Mm-hmm you know, customers, no matter how much institutions want to say so. But institutions talk about their culture all the time. Right. What's, that? What's our institutional culture? And, and it becomes 
enormously troubling because it's the same rhetoric that every institution uses. Well, our institution is focused on success. Our institution is focused on the, the importance of, of, of the individual and what they bring to us. Well, what institution isn't? Even the military, you're interested in success. And you got to deal with whoever comes to you and that you accept within to that and then acculturate them. Well, okay, so if, if we are a corporate entity as an individual, then we're taking in experiences as new parts and we're finding places for them in the company. <laughs> Does that change the company? Did Microsoft change over the years? Yeah. Mm. Um, does the college change over the years? Absolutely. Mission statements change. Suddenly there are vision statements. We didn't used to have vision statements. Oh, it's the mission and the vision and the strategic priorities. We go through this every day in my institution talking about how these all align. Well, now we want, now we want the structural integrity for everything to align. Just as if a person goes to a therapist and says, well, all these disparate things, we got to somehow pull them back into line. Right? Multiple personality. Right. Um, I don't know. You, you sent me off on that, but. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's interesting. And I think that does go something that kind of goes both ways and think about corporate culture as sort of um, almost the analogous um, counterpart to person personal beliefs or personal identity it's kind of a cool topic um yeah i mean that's that's basically you know saying that you know propaganda and social contracts can develop followers and strengthen notions about a group's identity and so i mean I, obviously the military is a good i you know a good example of that before you graduate boot camp everybody has to memorize the soldier's creed and i won't go through the whole thing for you but essentially it's just some, it's uh, the tenets of stoicism, you know, saying, you know, you're going to be strong and you're going to complete the mission no matter what. You're going to do all of these things. And so that's the military's identity. Whereas other cultures, other corporations have these different identities. And so how that, I think that's definitely affecting the, the person's sense of self, just like me knowing you affects who I am me being in the military affects who I am and who I am affects you and who I am also affects the military probably to a lesser extent. But if you have a large enough amount of people, corporate cultures can change. And if you look at Microsoft's a good example because Microsoft started out as this very dynamic, innovative company. And then a lot of their problems developed in the early two thousands when Google and these other companies and Apple started innovating and microsoft stayed firmly where it had been in the past which used to be innovative but now it's dodgy and stuck you know like an old middle-aged guy who forgets to look at fresh ideas <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i mean recently they've they've started they've taken in another direction and they've they've started to thrive again but i mean that's sort of the uh that's sort of the the pattern that develops is that it's funny to think that you know there's that saying you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain right and the, it's the, the batman thing the, right right and, and although hero and villain might not be the right words i think that um you know 
fresh and innovative and stodgy and stuck in the ways is definitely true. You know, I think that absolutely so the yourself can get stuck just as much as a leaf coming down a stream gets caught in a little eddy onto a stick and can't go all continue on down the waterfall. It's I don't think the leaf is cognizant, but that's not the point. The point is we 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 as we've said over the course of this, we we do get stuck. We get stuck in our stereotypical notions. We get stuck in trying to so much get out of our stereotypical notions that we lodge ourselves more in our stereotypical notions. We 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 get caught in the past and and therefore don't continue to grow. Not physically grow, but but to spiritually or, or intellectually right. grow. And that's that's a part of it that we didn't really get to touch on. Um, but is an important section of it, which is, you know, how yourself goes throughout time, not just experientially, but also how, um, physicality of, of aging causes, you know, changes in personality. But I think that, you know, if we didn't provide any real answers or insight into what constitutes the self, I hope that I think we did a good job of cracking open pandora's box on it because i think that i i think that a lot of people just never think about it much or take it for granted but when you really start to look into it all of a sudden these questions of maybe the self doesn't exist or maybe a corporation could be a self or you know sex versus gender or the uh, issues of um traumatic head injuries all of these things um are real important and they're all related to self and those boundaries of self are much bigger than we thought and much less defined than we think so thank you for listening to from nora to nothing ontological oxymorons recording production are provided by me joel bouchard and the song featured in the show is questions of my album jaguars which you can find on spotify or anywhere mp3s are sold until next time keep pondering